What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All the Above Podcast Extra. We like to drop these in between our full episodes. Our full episodes, of course, are video format with uh, super dope guests and uh, look at multiple headlines and all kinds of good stuff. And it takes a while to edit that and chop that all up. So in between our full episodes, we drop these passing periods when it's just Jeff and myself. Uh, my name is Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And although there's a there's plenty to get to, I don't know if y'all noticed, there was, a, there was an election this week, and we're going to talk about that some. But the last time we had passing period, Jeff, was on the eve of Halloween, and we had speculated as to whether or not you would have leftover candy, because of course you are new to the neighborhood that you live in, you are a new homeowner, and you weren't quite sure what Halloween would look like in terms of trick-or-treaters, because this was your first Halloween as a homeowner, and... You sounded pretty excited about it. Not going to lie. You sounded pretty excited about it. And that was a while ago. That was a while ago. However, we have not had a passing period since then. So can we get an update, Jeff? How did that go for you? How did it go? Yeah, it was, I have to say, it was great. It was as good as I could have hoped for. Um, And well, um, there are a lot of children in my neighborhood. Uh, And I kind of had an inkling that there was lots of children in the neighborhood because, you know, people drive. There's lots of um, minivans, larger SUVs here in in my new neighborhood. And, you know, you figure people aren't necessarily buying those cars, especially in this day and age of gas prices, unless, like, you need a big car to to carry some people. So uh, the kids rolled deep. It was fantastic. Uh, I'm, I estimated like about 150 kids over the course of the evening. We, we were out there myself. Damn. Uh, my, my sister, uh, who recently moved to L.A., was with me, which was great. And then um, even Manuel, our uh, friend of the show and senior middle school correspondent, Genevieve DuBose, Stopped by uh, for a little while um, on okay. ha- on Halloween to help with uh, with some of the trick or treating. So it was a, it was great, man. It was a good evening and uh, super cute kids. Uh, lots of like adults dressing up with the kids too, which was which was cute. Um, you know, some of the real little ones who like don't yet know how to trick or treat, so they just like walk up to you and stand awkwardly for for a minute and they're like i don't know what to do you're the adult give me some guidance here uh just super adorable there was one uh teenager who came by with her mom and the teenager was like super nervous and i'm gonna mess up this the uh the the movie she was dressed as the mayor from some cartoon and now i'm forgetting it but um it wasn't a cartoon that like I was familiar with, but once I got the story and I googled it, I was like, "Oh, dope costume!" And she prepared to like sing a song. So this teenager oh, wow. was feeling very awkward in the moment, and her mom was like, "You practice, like you gotta sing the song." And she was like, "No, mom, I don't want to sing the song." Uh, sang the song, and it was precious and adorable and super cute. And I was like. Double double wow. candy for you, teenager. <laughs> like wow, uh, it it was great, man. It was it was really good, really good. And I did not have extra candy. I shut down shop around like nine o'clock, and there was literally like the two jankiest looking pieces of candy left in the bowl. That was it. And then I got a knock on the door right as I was closing up shop, and uh, this this wonderful little boy and with his grandma came by. And I was like, hey, man, I'm sorry. All I got left is this, but you get the very last piece of candy. And he was excited and ran off with his grandma. So 
Zero extra candy. Wow. That, that is, that's wild. Um, my neighborhood is so different. Like there are hardly anybody, there were hardly any folks out there trick-or-treating and the whole having a teenager come up to trick-or-treat, you know, I had conversations with my students about this. I, I mostly have juniors and a few seniors in my uh, homeroom class. And so many of them, so many of them went trick-or-treating. And I was like, y'all are too old, too grown to be going trick-or-treating. Like, why should I give you candy? You are over here. Like, some of y'all drive yourselves to school. And, you know, we had, you know, we were joking about it and laughing about it. But, and asking them where they went trick-or-treating, like, universally, the answer was like, oh, we went to the good neighborhood. We went to the good neighborhood. We went to the rich folks' homes. And I was thinking, huh, maybe I'm in a, quote-unquote, bad neighborhood uh, where we are considered too broke to go trick or treating because nobody was coming to my neighborhood to trick or treat, and I, I actually, I think my neighborhood is a really great neighborhood. But in any case, um, I just found it hilarious how they were strategizing where to go, and uh, yeah, man, good stuff, good stuff. I'm very happy for you to have had such a pleasant experience in your first trick or treater um, action, I guess. And uh, good stuff, man, good stuff. And folks, we know it, that was a while ago, but. Curious, curious minds wanted to know. And I know the ALTA family who have been listening to our passing periods along the way um, were curious about how that turned out. And um, yeah, man, thanks for the update. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking, man. It was it was wonderful, wonderful experience. So I'm already looking forward to next year, Halloween. Yeah, well, Jeff, about that. So they were talking about a, a, a red wave in this election. And of course, Halloween, That is that is not christian at all jeff and giving away free candy that is ah that's that's very very on the marxist side of things that's, so that's downright uh stalinist uh, when you think about it i mean yes yeah so i don't know it's about this idea of having halloweens down there oh definitely definitely i mean Come on now, you got to put them to work first. At least have have some some uh, manual labor out front for them to do before they get their before they get their candy, Jeff. So uh, we're going to talk about the election results a little bit because well, acquiring minds will like to know whether or not there was that red wave and how that might impact Halloween. Uh, but more specifically, how might that impact our school? So of course, folks who are tuning in, I'm sure you're not tuning in to all of the above for you know, widespread election coverage, because we like to talk about schools and school systems. And um, with regards to these midterms, we're going to focus mostly on how they might impact our schools and, and how they might impact the school system specifically. So, Jeff, the big story of the last two years around education when it comes to education and uh, its intersections with our political process has been the story of banning books and banning CRT and anything construed as critical race theory and, of course, uh, attacks on our LGBTQ plus students and, and facilities for trans students, all these things. So let's talk about it, man. What do we know about these midterm results and how they might impact that ongoing conversation about curriculum and instruction and all that? Yeah, man. Well, so... One, I will say, uh, from the survey of reporting that, uh, that I have done and we have done, um, you know, the, the, the scale of the issue in this country makes it difficult to make sweeping statements about what took place, right? Because we have True. thousands of school districts across the country, most of which are operated by school boards that make governing decisions uh, in some way. And so... Um, 
you know, there were some wins, there were some losses, on probably on both, quote-unquote, both sides uh, of the equation. But certainly from, from what we've been able to tell, the, the supposed red wave uh, did not manifest uh, fully um, on the nation's school systems, which, you know, regardless of where you fall on any kind of political spectrum, if you care about, like, truth and decency and kindness to young people and respect for all, that is a good, excuse me, that is a good thing. Um, the, you know, the, the forces of, uh, on our political spectrum that are, like, preaching active hate and, and carrying out a campaign of psychological warfare against kids and educators alike, uh, did not win nearly as many races as they sought to win. Um, so high level, I think that's, that's kind of the takeaway we have um, here. Uh, these folks have been pouring, particularly uh, conservative groups, and there's a story in uh, USA Today in particular um, by Aaron Mansfield and Kayla Jimenez that uh, was published uh, this week that uh, we're drawing from uh, specifically on this, but... Um, you know, there, there are these dark money groups that have come into existence that are funneling millions and millions of dollars into local school board races across the country. In some cases to, you know, just sort of lobby for issues, right, um, and sway candidates to back um, anti-CRT legislation. And in other cases, um, the, these, they're running like whole slates of candidates to say, you know, replace four seats on the school board with this you know, slate of people supported by us. So these groups, uh, the two that are that are uh, perhaps best funded, at least that we know of, and uh, profiled in this piece called, and this is just too good to be true, the 1776 Project PAC, okay? And we've, we've talked plenty <laughs> about the great work of scholarship that is the 1776 Project uh, on this show, uh, as well as Moms for Liberty, which is a great name for a group because, you know, the, the beautiful thing about conservative groups is when they title themselves things like that, you know that they don't believe in any of the words that are, <laughs> are there. So they might be made of moms, but they're most definitely like people supporting the patriarchy for repression, not, not anything about moms for liberty. Um, so, you know, or at least there's a tiny slice of moms that might be a part of this, uh, this particular group. Um, but, you know, these folks uh, work to elect candidates who campaign for things like, uh, as we've talked about, getting rid of CRT, not talking about race or controversial topics. Generally speaking, um, doing away with any discussion of things relating to social justice, um, trumping up a, uh, no pun intended, a... Um, uh, this kind of suite of issues known as parental rights, which of course is a very narrow definition of parental rights, but meaning I as a parent should be able to prevent my white child from learning any truthful history and feeling uncomfortable because they're white and, uh, you know, discussing anything about how racism, sexism, homophobia, classism, etc., have played out in the course of United States history. Right. Um, th this is who these folks are. Right. Um, now, to give you some figures behind this, uh, the 1776 Project PAC raised three point two million through the end of October uh, to pour into to school board races. Now, that might sound like 
just a decent amount of money relative to like a presidential campaign or a statewide, you know, gubernatorial or Senate campaign. But for local school boards, particularly in like small towns or, you know, suburban areas, that is a fortune, right? Like folks can get elected with a, you know, with like tens of thousands of dollars, right? So, so they can support hundreds of candidates with, you know, with this amount of money, right? Um, Moms for Liberty, uh, of course, is a network of dozens of dark money groups. Uh, so, of course, we don't know where that money comes from. They endorsed 270 individual candidates across the country. Um, and so, you know, this, this is what's going on, right? But we see very mixed results across the country. So there are places where they put tons of money into races and lost. There are places where they put money in and they won. Um, and so, you know, this is, I think, both uh, somewhat reason to celebrate, like, oh, thank goodness these folks did not carry the day everywhere. And also, like, the campaign of psychological warfare is alive and well and well-funded. And we need to be vigilant about this. We need to go after these folks, hold them accountable, and frankly, uh, exit them from school boards as, as quickly as we can because they are, they are seeking to do harm. Uh, frankly, which is should be antithetical to the nature of school, uh, <laughs> but is certainly the mainstream, you know, policy platform uh, that these folks are supporting. Yeah, man. Yeah, those those results. It's, it's kind of hard to, I guess, it's hard for me to consider how how to feel about them because. For one, as you said, it's hard to paint any, or hard to walk away with any uh, generalization about this since there's so so many hundreds of uh, school boards across the nation. And, and obviously, it's going to look different at different boards. But I am thinking deeply about those teachers who who might be out of school and maybe they've been there for a while. And with this recent loud and well-moneyed effort to radically shift what happens in our classrooms um or you know maybe not radically shift because it's not like classrooms are are really uh doing that progressive education thing in the first place in most in most places but um, i think about those teachers whose whose feelings about themselves in the classroom uh even even just strictly as employees of the district are are shifted now because maybe one or two or three folks just got elected to your school board who have been very vocal against teaching anything that might be construed as uh, diverse or equity-minded or social justice work and who might be really loud and who might be wanting to visit your classroom and, and quote-unquote catch you in something. So I am thinking about those teachers who who are trying to evaluate really where they stand now with new school board members on their school board and how safe or not safe are they in helping their students um, feel welcome and included in the curriculum and what have you. So shout out to those teachers who are trying to, to run the mental math about what they can and can't do right now with these new names who might have just appeared on the board. But generally speaking, overall, yeah. I'm glad to see that there were so many losses for for those folks who are out there with Moms for Liberty money or in California there's um there's another group that you know sounds sounds like they would uh, be for parents and for education there's I think they're called Parent Revolt or something um, that was mentioned in in Ed Source who also went out there and supported all kinds of right wing candidates who have said some really awful stuff lately and these groups I I think it's uh, worth a reminder that 
Moms for Liberty and Parent Anything, Parents uh, Standing for Education, Parent Revolt, Parent whatever, these groups continue to only represent a sliver of the moms who are out there, a sliver of the parents who are out there. They're not representing black and brown folks for sure. They're not representing marginalized uh, groups for sure. Um, I know based on conversations with the parents and caregivers in my community, uh, largely who are marginalized peoples, that they want curriculum that does help students interrogate the legacy of race and racism. They want curriculum that is inclusive of um, different perspectives of different communities. They want curriculum that is going to help their students understand their place in the United States and not whitewash things. So the majority of parents want that. So these groups out there who are claiming to represent parents are really only representing, if anything, a sliver of parents who don't want any of that because they benefit from the status quo and they want to continue to keep status quo um, in the classroom. So there's that reminder. And looking at California specifically, shout out to EdSource. They had an article looking at the results of school board races in California and of course, Anybody who's outside of California probably still pictures California being this this liberal wonderland where it's all blue everywhere, but it's it's hardly blue. It's it's really only blue in the metropolitan areas and anything outside of the the major cities, particularly most things outside of Bay Area, Los Angeles, um, Sacramento City, uh, areas outside of that, not really blue at all. And in some cases, very 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 dark red. I think our our incoming Speaker of the House is um, Kevin McCarthy, who is from California. You might forget that he's from California based on how he speaks because California, again, is not this liberal wonderland. But in any case, these um, these school board races across California, similarly, similarly mixed results with regards to who um, who won their elections. A whole lot of folks who were supported by Moms for Liberty and, and Parent Revolt and these other folks, um, a lot of them lost. A few of them won, but a lot of them did lose. And a lot of parents, it seems like, are not wanting that political craziness to enter their classroom. And for them, the political craziness is these right-wing groups talking about, um, there's one one candidate up in Rockland, shout out to Rockland folks, um, just north of, just north of uh, Sacramento. Um, Destiny Christian Church in Rockland teamed up with the Christian advocacy group, the American Council, to recruit candidates to advance a, quote, biblical worldview. This is according to the Sacramento Bee. So, yeah, a lot of parents, when they see stuff like that, and the parents might themselves be Christian. The parents might themselves go to church a lot, but they don't necessarily want school board members who are trying to advance a biblical worldview in our public school classrooms. Like, that is, that's scary stuff. So, seeing that a lot of these candidates didn't make it, that is refreshing. That is rewarding. But seeing that some of these candidates across the nation did make it, did earn seats on school boards, that, of course, is worrisome. And that's something to continue, continue to be vigilant about. I think for a lot of parents who don't follow politics really, really closely, I think it's helpful for them to hear teacher voices and voices from uh, voices from the classroom about what this curriculum actually looks like so that when they do come across crazy stuff on Facebook about this like radical curriculum, they they know that it's not true. They know that in actuality, it's not radical to have a children's book that's inclusive of um, multiple uh, different racial perspectives. Like that's not radical at all. So I definitely think the teacher voice is very important here. Part of the story in EdSource talked about how a local teachers union helped make phone calls home and some parents were uh, receiving those phone calls and realizing that, you know, I'm, I'm going to trust the teachers on this one because the teachers know what educate, you know, they're, they are the professional educators. So if they say that this person who's running for office is going to be bad for the classroom, I'm going to trust the teacher on this. So I think that's also something that hopefully we'll learn more about as the, 
these results come in, the impact of the teacher voice and the impact of teachers unions and helping like quell the nervousness and the fear mongering that's happening about what what that classroom actually looks like today because the classroom does not look like what a lot of these folks on the right are claiming it looks like the classroom is not teaching students to hate themselves or feel that feel, feel that they are oppressors themselves or to fear or to you know be indoctrinated into some um, particular ideology like that's just simply not happening so shout out to those teachers and those folks out there who are helping spread truthful truthful telling and information about what our schools currently look like. Did you just say trust the teachers? The parents are going to trust teachers as professional educators? Did you just utter those words, Dr. Rustin? Actual, actual parents who send their kids to actual public schools and who have positive experiences with their public schools, which I, I feel is a, a great deal, a great majority of parents. Yes, they will. It's these folks who are claiming that they are parents, but then you see that their kids never touched a, a, a public school. You see that they actually don't have kids in the school system. It's those folks out there gallivanting as so-called parents who whose kids are not even in the public school system. So like, what are you even talking about? You don't even have kids in the system. How do you know what's happening in the system? So. When I say parents will trust the teachers, I mean those parents who legitimately believe that their child is best served in their public school and that their kid's teacher is doing their, the best they can. Those parents, yeah, they'll listen to the teachers. Mm, interesting. Also, good, good, use of, good use of the term gallivanting. I uh, just want to shout, yes, shout that out. Good vocabulary on all the above, as usual. Uh, yeah, no, I'm just, you know, it's funny. That sentence... You know, parents trusting teachers as professional educators. I would just like to point out how rare <laughs> that sentence, how rarely it has ever been uttered in the history of discourse on American education, uh, period. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of uh, shocking and refreshing to hear. Um, and, you know, let's keep it real. In some cases, we have not necessarily uh, had a great historical record to earn the trust of, uh, of families. Oh, but that is certainly true as well. But certainly in many areas we have. And, um, you know, or at least, let's say in a relative sense, if you're just a general skeptic, who should you listen to on these issues? Crazy Moms for Liberty nut jobs? Or your local teacher who's actually teaching history and English and science in class and is like, uh, we're not doing anything scary. We're, we're talking about what actually happened in history and we're teaching science, like, you know, how your body works and how climate change functions, right? These are not, I mean, they might be scary in terms of what's going on in the world, but these are not, uh, cons you know, uh, Marxist conspiracies being uh, played out on the minds of, of young children. Um, so, anyways, yeah, um, yeah uh, this this I'm glad we got to touch on this today, Manuel, because you know there's like real, some measure of relief I think we can express in this moment, and also like continued vigilance that is going to be required. Yeah, continued vigilance for sure, and. Granted, we're, we're here focusing on the impact on schools and our education system, but just generally speaking, um, there was, at least speaking for myself, I was very concerned about what these midterm results will look like simply because there are so many candidates who are very overtly, overtly wanting to um, 
wanting to influence future elections in such a way that um, to ensure that the GOP would always win. I think there was a candidate out there who said, like, you know, once I win, Republicans will win, uh, will always win in our state. And, you know, sort of insinuating that changes to election law and procedures and this and that would be done to uh, make sure that Republican candidates would continue to win. Anyways, uh, so, yeah, I was really concerned that this would be like a really big step in the direction of uh, fascist takeover of the United States. And I, I don't think it's any exaggeration to think that the... Um, that we were staring down a barrel of that, and we still are for sure. Uh, but maybe it's going to happen more slowly than than I had thought. So, uh, looking at these school board election results, I think similar to the national election results, I think they show that like a lot of voters out there, a lot of folks out there, kind of like they don't they don't want that really extremist far right stuff. They're tired of hearing of it. They're tired of hearing about it. They see how clownish so many of these candidates are and they don't want that on their local school board. They don't want that uh in Congress largely. Obviously, there's many many right-wing crazy folks who just got elected um back to Congress, but just generally speaking, maybe it's not as dire or maybe they're not there aren't as many people who want a a white supremacist fascist takeover of the nation as it seemed like prior to these midterm results i don't know if that that really made any sense but mixed results i will take mixed results as a win that shows there are enough reasonable folks out there still remaining who want what is reasonable for themselves and their communities so i'll take that yeah yeah agreed um all right so uh we also have some news out of this recent election cycle, Manuel, dealing with uh, state ballot measures or even local ballot measures, frankly, um, here in California. So in many states around the country, there are, uh, you know, ballot measures, uh, referendums, referenda, whatever the Latin speakers of the world can correct me on that, uh, that are put onto the ballot. And this is the only element of our uh, political system, Manuel, that is an actual direct democracy uh, that, that I am uh, aware of in terms of you know, matters of legislation being put to a vote by the people. And for anyone who lives in one of these states, certainly here in California, we know that this is entirely a mixed bag of like, sometimes it's really cool because we can do good stuff like, hey, the people want weed to be legal and are tired of cops arresting and harassing people over like stupid little stuff. And so we're just going to say yes. And you lazy politicians who are scared and afraid to, you know, take a stand on something because someone's going to have an ad against you that says you like crime or whatever down the road. We will just make a decision for you that this is what we want, right? And there's all kinds of good things across the country that can come to pass with ballot measures, um, legalization uh, or de decriminalization of marijuana, returning voting rights to former felons, um, you know, gay marriage being legalized, all kinds of good stuff can happen. Also, bad stuff can happen. <laughs> you know, uh, affirmative action can be ended. Draconian immigration kinds of, you know, policies can be passed. Uh, so, in that landscape, in the state of California, there was a whole bunch of bond measure, uh, bond measures, ballot measures, some of which involved bond funding, uh, that were up to voters to make decisions on. And um, there's really kind of two slices of this we wanted to tackle today. One is that there were a few different uh, cities or regions across the state um, that were using ballot measures to secure funding for um, 
teacher housing, for bond measures that would fund teacher housing. Now, we have covered a few times over, over the last few years on the show uh, issues related to the teacher shortage, one of which being many of, especially here in California, but this is true in many states across the country as well, uh, many cities are so expensive to live in now that even with a union wage as a new teacher or even, frankly, a veteran teacher, it is too expensive or cost prohibitive or sometimes even just outright impossible to live a dignified, you know, comfortable life um, as a renter in those cities based on your teacher salary. And so in, in both the classic American faction of like, let's not actually solve the problem and pay teachers more. Uh, <laughs> let's find some other creative solution that enriches, you know, uh, property owners and, <laughs> and large real estate companies. Uh, but that's a story for another time. Um, we have ballot measures in places like Santa Cruz, uh, in San Diego and San Jose, all some of the most expensive urban areas to live in the, in the state um, and in the country, frankly, um, that all seem to be on their way to victory um, that will help fund the construction of uh, affordable housing for school staff, essentially trying to remove the barrier of housing for educators to be able to live in the communities where they want to work, right? So um, this is interesting, Manuel. We are, we are funding. This seems to now be coming to fruition. It was maybe more a little bit of an idea that we talked about in the past, and now, assuming the, you know, the slow count of mail-in ballots holds, um, which it, you know, by all accounts, it seems like it will, these measures will pass, and we will start seeing affordable housing, uh, ostensibly owned by or funded by the district, come into existence within these areas that would allow educators to qualify for, quote-unquote, affordable housing. So, uh, Manuel, what do you think about this, man? Is this good news? Is this something else? I like that quote unquote affordable housing because what does affordable even mean anymore in California in particular? A lot of times I see how much affordable housing is going for. I'm like, who is that affordable for? But in any case, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. This is this is one of those issues where I just need to learn a lot more about it because it it makes me nervous to see schools, public school districts in the business of real estate whether it's to build housing for its teachers or offer uh, benefits and incentives and subsidies for its teachers to be able to afford uh, to, to live in the area that they teach. It, you know, stating the obvious, it shouldn't be up to schools to make sure that teachers could afford to live uh, where they teach. Like teachers should be paid enough to be able to afford to live where they teach regardless. And uh, schools should have enough um, funding to make that a reality in terms of uh, teacher pay and, and, and all that. And I don't know, like, I'm just thinking about how many districts are out there with district leadership who is either already overworked and overburdened or just not really that great at some things. And to have have these monies 
to develop affordable housing. I'm just thinking like who in the district manages that? Is that a new department, like a department of housing within your local school district? And I, I just, there's gotta be a better way, man. There's gotta be a better way to address the fact that teachers can't afford to live uh, in the communities that they teach. There's gotta be a better way to address it than having districts themselves uh, invest money into building, building new housing. And I say that as somebody who admits, I admit fully, I do not fully understand the logistics of how this this will work. I don't know if this money that came through with these measures is enough money to make a difference. Like, are we talking now we can house like 15 of our new teachers or are we talking now we can house like a significant amount of our new teachers? What happens 10, 15, 20 years down the road? Because obviously real estate market is up and down. What does that do to the district's books and financing and, and, and the importance of these? I, I don't know. It's just so much there that I admit I don't know. It just makes me nervous because we talk about how schools... It, Teachers specifically have to do so much more than just the the regular business of teaching and learning um, because of the just massive impacts of of poverty of of different oppressive systems that our our uh, young people have to navigate. We have to do so much, and building housing it's just another thing, and it's just. And I think about like real estate developers and how like they would love they would love for for public schools to have some housing to to get in on this because it's like that's that's more public money going to help keep the real estate market like flush with with business. I don't yeah. know, man. Yep. I don't know. That's an excellent description, uh, Doctor Rustin. And here here's a great analogy I'll give for it. This is the Obamacare Obamacareification of the housing market, right? <laughs> Obamacareification. Yeah, nice. yeah, okay. So here's how Obamacare works in a nutshell, right? Health insurance is crappy, generally speaking. It doesn't cover stuff well enough. It cuts off people with pre-existing conditions. Like it's a horrible draconian evil system. Uh, but it's better than nothing, so we accept it, right? Um, but then enough public pressure mounts, we realize it's kind of untenable, urgent emergency rooms are overrun with people who like could have just seen a doctor six months ago and been fine or whatever. It's super duper costly for the people because we have to backstop all these people who aren't rich to get basic services. So we say, let's do it better. And instead of doing a single payer system, which the rest of the civilized world has decided and knows to be superior, um, we say, you know what we're going to do is just give everyone a subsidy so they can buy private insurance, even if it, that insurance is not that great. But we're going to put in some rules to say the insurance can only be so crappy. It can't be all the way crappy. Okay? That's basically what we're talking about with these measures. We're not going to solve the problem by just paying people. Or by just saying, hey, look, you can't charge $3,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. Like, there's, there's literally not a, unless your one-bedroom apartment is literally made of gold, there's not <laughs> any one-bedroom apartment anywhere in this community that is worth $3,000 a month. And you, we should put some kind of cap on this system that does not allow this level of exploitation to take place, right? So instead of doing either of those things, let's pay people enough to afford it or let's control the prices, we say, let's give the private companies who are already exploiting us <laughs> a lot more money to build some stuff and then you can be certain that this is how this is going to play out my well. They're going to build a fancy new apartment development. Not all of it is going to be affordable truly affordable housing, right? It's going to be, a lot of it is stuff that continues to drive up the market rate 
uh, of, of real estate in the area. And then some of the units are going to be earmarked as affordable housing. And then they're going to say, see, we're, we're doing such good service for the community, right? And it probably will help in the sense that, like, there will be more under market, you know, rate, quote unquote, under market units that'll be earmarked for educators. And that may help some people, right? So this, this is how we do things in America, <laughs> okay? It's not a good idea, but it's how we do things. And by my survey of the text of these ballot measures, um, none of them are spelling out how they're going to build affordable housing. The text is really just like, hey, we want to issue bonds in order to raise X amount of dollars so that we can do this list of things. And in most of the cases, these ballot measures are saying they want to do stuff like renovate facilities and build nice new school facilities, which of course is a good idea. Um, we want to like uh, do asbestos abatement and you know new plumbing and things of that nature, which is of course a good idea. And um, and we want to build affordable housing. So it doesn't <coughs> excuse me doesn't get into any of the details about how and who's going to profit from this equation but we know how this stuff works man it's not it's not a secret so um i have mixed feelings about this i feel like you know maybe it's better than nothing and so fine but also like come on man we can do better than this we can do a lot better than this and uh we know that school districts are not prepared to be property developers and landlords so they're gonna just use the money and give it to the industry that has that infrastructure and those folks are ruthlessly exploitative and so it's it, you know yeah it's not a good look yeah. on that front it's not and obviously it will help somebody there will be some teachers who are are aided by this and definitely um i support anything that's going to help out some teachers because i know what it's like but yeah, it just it seems like we got there got to be a better way, man. There, there's got to be a better way. Maybe if this was paired with um, something that that restricts the number of Airbnbs in an area, you know, because so many places instead of being available for rental like they might have been um, 10, 20 years ago, now the owners rather use them for Airbnb and, and short term rentals and things like that, and that of course drives up the price for because you have less housing available for folks who need long term rentals, things like that. Like there's this paired with some stuff like that, some efforts to try to quell the amount of profiteering that's happening uh, in our real estate markets. Maybe that will be more reasonable, but just um, having schools, having schools uh, front the money to, to build some more places, it just does not seem like the best approach. And it might, it's, I'm questioning whether or not it's a worthwhile approach at all. Cause even if it does help a few, is it worth it when you look at how much money has to go towards that? But I don't know, man. Like I said at the top, I just need to learn more about the details of all this because just off the bat, it just seems like that's not not something that I want my local school districts to be uh, to have on their plate to like to try to handle, man. It's just it's there's enough work already to do as a school district. Uh, building housing should not should not become uh, an additional task. I don't know. Yeah. Yep. Um, I agree. Let's uh, let's pivot to. Um another ballot measure this time a state ballot measure that passed which is really interesting and raises both like excitement i would say about the potential for positive impact across every school in the state frankly and also like 
potential concern because, you know, this it, good ideas sometimes need a runway in order to be able to be implemented well, and we don't want to just, like, do something great real quick and have it not go well, and then people are like, oh, we tried that, it's not good, right? So what am I talking about? Um, we're talking about Proposition 28, which uh, just recently passed uh, in, this, um, in last week's election here in California. Proposition 28 um, it was basically California's art and music K-12 education funding initiative. Um, in a nutshell, what this ballot measure says is that the state is required to spend 1% of its uh, general fund for education on uh, arts education. Specifically, I believe it's 80% of those funds are earmarked for the hiring of and training of um, full-time arts, cert certificated arts educators. And then the other portion of the funding is intended to support, you know, materials, supplies, uh, stuff that's infrastructure that's needed for arts uh, programming um, and the carrying out of the arts curriculum at the schools. So, you know, I mean, look, who can be mad about this, man, right? Like, this is great. We talk all the time about how, you know, No Child Left Behind gutted arts programs, right? And we've been suffering in particular over the last two decades with just like a hollowing out of the infrastructure of arts education in this country, in particular here in California in elementary schools. Almost no elementary schools in this state have full-time arts teachers uh, who are credentialed. Um, you know, and even at the secondary level, kids get maybe one year of art, you know, over the course of high school. Uh, if you're lucky to go to like an arts magnet or something, you know, maybe you get more. But uh, it is both, you know, unfortunate and frankly, like, you know, sad that we have, uh, we have spent so little and taken so much from arts education over uh, the last few decades in this country. And in as much as we're always wanting to talk about how our schools are great enriching places and we're supporting, you know, higher learning in this very important way, which there's all kinds of studies showing the helpful impacts of arts education, not only on student engagement, but also on learning across content areas, we don't put our money where our mouth is. So this is the people saying, let's put our, at least some of our money where our mouth is. And the impact of this is going to be, or at least can be transformative. So if this initiative is brought to full tuition, it should result in the hiring of about 15,000 new arts teachers across the state, effectively doubling um, that number of uh, certificated teachers. Um, and that is great. And also, like, where are we going to get these teachers, man? <laughs> we, we already have an existing teacher shortage, period. And we especially have a shortage of arts educators because of the incentives that have been put in place. Lots of graduate programs uh, across the state don't even have arts education credentialing. Uh, programs, right? Many schools and districts rely on a network of community organizations who have teaching artists who come in and do part-time work or even full-time work patched together uh, across different school sites to fulfill the arts education requirements. So we're in a bit of a, of a you know, a sticking point here, Manuel, where so now we have this new mandate to spend these dollars, but we literally have gutted the pipeline. 
And I'm, I worry a bit that we're in a situation where this is going to turn in. We are, we are going to man, self-manifest a problem here where then the conservative folks are going to say, see, we tried to spend all this money on arts education and it was crap and it didn't work out the way it was supposed to. So we should gut it all and do double blocks of reading and math even more. Right. Like that. That's my worry here with this with this ballot measure, even though I'm really excited about the potential of it. Huh. Sounds like sounds like you're against the funding of arts, Jeff. <laughs> sounds like sounds like you are predicting that this is a waste of money. Y'all heard her here first. Jeffrey Garrett thinks it's a waste of money to support arts education in California, which I just want to be on record in saying that I full disagreement with my co-host. I love the work of our arts educators. And I can't wait for there to be more arts educators thanks to this funding, which is kind of crazy. This is 1% or 1% of the general fund of education. Like, seems like such a small amount, but it's actually really big when you look at the dollar amount. And yes, I agree in the sense that we do have a teacher shortage where these teachers are gonna come from. Um, if anything, this could be impetus for uh, programs to go ahead and add an arts education element to their offerings because if grad programs are struggling to recruit folks, which they are, um, maybe letting folks know who are interested in arts, like, yo, we like California has this money set aside for arts education. It is coming back. It is here to stay and it's robust and we need folks. And, you know, our program will help get you there. Like, I, I think this will help in those efforts. And it will take time, of course, to get enough teachers, enough arts education teachers to, to fully like reach these numbers. But I, I mean, to me, this is all good news, man. All good news because arts education, as we've uh, said before, and we had an episode fully dedicated to arts education. Um, we had specifically one dedicated to um, music education featuring uh, Ben War Shepherd out of Sacramento. Shout out to Ben. Um, but yeah, man, as we said, like this stuff is incredibly important and we cannot rush towards the direction of having uh, just overemphasis on English and math because of test scores, uh, learning loss and all that good stuff. Like I think... We absolutely need to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to the importance of arts and making sure the money is secured, I think is step one towards really building pathways to get more folks into arts education, uh, just having the funding secure. Because otherwise, like, you know, if I'm if I'm about to graduate college and um, I'm, a, I'm an artist, and I majored in whatever, and, you know, I'm considering going, you know, there's a possibility that I could become a teacher, but like... They don't have arts teachers anywhere. They cut them all. So like, why would I even pursue that? Knowing that like, okay, they're looking for arts teachers now. There's money there now. And this program or that program has popped up to help folks get their certification to be arts teachers. I, I think that's a incredibly important first step because I don't, I don't know how we, how we do anything else in the area of arts education without first showing our commitment, our financial commitment to it. So showing that commitment first and then those other problems that you mentioned, which are significant problems, we could deal with those, but it's a lot easier to deal with those when you know the money is there than when you're hoping that the money will at some point be there. So, you know, kudos to everybody who, who worked hard, all the folks on the ground who really worked hard to make sure this made it on the ballot and to make sure that folks understood it and it passed by plenty. So yeah, shout out to all of them. And if anything else, also like there's been so much focus on STEM and of course, science, technology, engineering, math, that stuff's incredibly important, but not that too many of our listeners are on Twitter anymore, but I think we are seeing in live action, just like 
like in front of our eyes what happens when we put too much faith and trust in technology leaders and technology folks and don't have enough of a holistic view um, of things. And I think arts education goes a long way towards building students up who have a more holistic understanding of the world around them and aren't just a thousand percent focused on the engineering part without really thinking about the human part of things. So there's that yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, this is the, the A in STEAM, uh, which you know, yeah. is also all the rage these days. Uh, but did y'all see what uh, Manuel did hating on me, talking about how I don't support the arts? This is this is the hostile work environment. Ooh, I'm going to take that clip I right there. To... You just said, I'm going to take that clip. I don't support the arts. <laughs> Boom. That's a clip right there. This is the hostile work environment I have to work in. Is there an HR department here at uh, all the above? dot com aota show dot com i'm gonna i'm gonna have to give myself an attorney uh okay <laughs> so now that we have corrected the record to show that i indeed not only do not hate arts <laughs> i love arts education and i have to give a special shout out because man well um part of the prompting of what we're talking about on this story comes from a op-ed that was in edsource this week from my colleague uh, at the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools, Alex Karras, who's the director of arts education, uh, who wrote a fantastic um, op-ed there kind of outlining a lot of the issues we're talking about here. And he and they suggest uh, some important steps that we could take quickly now to try to mitigate some of these concerns. So I just want to briefly run down a couple of things that they're talking about, which might help people get a sense of like, how we need to lay the groundwork for this to be successful, right? So uh, we mentioned that there's not enough arts teachers, right? Currently, there's only a handful of Cal State universities that offer teacher prep program with degrees in uh, the arts, like theater, dance education, etc. cetera. Um, University of California schools offer no credential granting programs for undergraduates, uh, period, um, and um, we also have, uh, you know, an opportunity there to, of course, expand, create new programs, expand current programs, etc. But also do things like create alternate certification pathways for the large number of current teaching artists who are working in our schools and have been doing a lot of the arts education work. They've been carrying the lift for us. There's a lot of fantastic practitioners there who deserve an opportunity to have a real dignified pathway into a good uh, credential teaching position, right? There's the kind of infrastructure question which they highlight, right? And he uses the phrase, you know, doing things like art on a cart or having the dance teacher teach dance on the soccer field or things of that nature, right? Which you can easily see happening in schools that don't have a dance room or they have a crappy classroom that could be a dance room but doesn't have any mirrors or bars or other things like you need, right? Sinks, paint, canvases, you know, materials to make art class successful, we're going to have to close a big gap there, right? And so there's things like that that is what I'm getting at that we, I think, need to do in order to be able to make the spirit of the law become the lived reality um, of the law, right? Which is we want great arts programming from our, for our kids. We don't just want a box checked because we have a person on staff with this credential you know, and now we're done, right? We want good arts teaching and learning happening in every school. Yeah, absolutely. Amen to that. And we'll put the link to that op-ed underneath this episode um, for those, especially, you know, and I, I say this and I we should have maybe said this earlier in the episode, but a lot of our folks don't 
live in California and you might be like, what's the matter to me? I'm not in California. Um, a lot of a lot of the California focus on our show, of course, because we are both educators in California. A lot of our listeners do live in California, uh, but it's also a, a, a show of ideas and efforts that perhaps other states and other locales could tap into. And definitely, definitely, I would love to hear from anybody outside of California um, who is in an area where they do a really good job of arts educator preparation and getting uh, arts teachers through because you know clearly that's a that's a weakness and limitation currently in California. So so yeah, so hopefully you haven't tuned us out because you're like, oh, I don't live in California. What's that matter to me? Uh, because I think we could all learn together and you know, what, what do they call this in education? We uh, we share best practices. This is sharing of best practices. Um, there so go. there's that. And Jeff, thankfully, thankfully for those who are in college and like working their way to maybe becoming arts educators, thankfully we know that there's no controversy left really around student loans anymore because you know Uncle Joe, Uncle Joe came through and uh, forgave him. Right? Where are we at with that? <laughs> Oh, Manuel. Okay, we'll we'll keep this one quick uh, here, Manuel. But there, so everybody knows that Joe Biden. Uh, I think you and I, like we 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 placed a wager, if I remember correctly, or or a quasi wager about like how trash was the loan forgiveness going to be that came out of the White House, and we were like, it's going to be garbage. It's going to be like fifteen hundred dollars or some tr- some trash like that, and you know, it was like. Milk toasty, typical Biden stuff, but it was also like a little better maybe than we feared it might be um, in terms of the total amount of forgiveness, which uh, now now that I have to say this, I'm like having a, a brain lapse. It was twenty up to $20,000, right? Um, right. Was the eligible or the amount that individual borrowers could be eligible for in terms of forgiveness. Um so there's already been a number of challenges from our right-wing friends um, in the court system that resulted in the White House putting on hold new applications to the program, right? And this past week, a U.S. judge in Texas blocked President Biden's plan to provide millions of borrowers with up to $20,000 in loan forgiveness, um, adding to the sort of legal obstacles um, of this plan. Now, here's where it gets great, because this came from District Judge Mark Pittman, who is, of course, a former Trump appointee uh, based out of Fort Worth. Um, And here's what he said, and this is the beauty of right-wing politics in America, Manuel. He said, I quote, In this country, we are not ruled by an all-powerful executive with a pen and a phone. All right. Okay. So (laughs) just going to let that marinate for a second. Uh, Instead, we are ruled by a constitution that provides for three distinct and independent branches of government. Okay. End quote. Um, So, you know, this, this is the fascinating stuff, right? Like uh, the people who are the richest, wealthiest, most privileged, most government subsidy receiving folks in our society are totally fine with socialism for the rich and raw, you know, violent capitalism for the rest of us. Uh, someone in history said that quote better than I did. Maybe it was like Martin Luther King or somebody like that, but um, I'm paraphrasing someone there. And uh, this is just another example of this that we see, man, right? Like this is, this is like, could this program be better? Absolutely. Is blocking this like an outright 
policy violence attack on the ability of many thousands of people across this country to live a comfortable life? Absolutely. This type of move should be like political suicide to an entire party, <laughs> like frankly. Yeah. Uh, and it's mind-boggling to me that they would do this. Like I, I, don't, I don't, you know, it's mean, it's, it's unpopular. I'm like, wow, how much of a jackass do you have to be to do something like this, man? Yeah, and it's wild because when you, for this particular case, now there's several challenges to Biden's loan relief plan, but um, this particular case, the two plaintiffs, it sounds like they are arguing that like it's messed up because they don't qualify for it. So it's, you know, one of them, um, his his loans, he wanted to fold them into a, um, well, he never received a Pell Grant. So he's limited to just the 10,000, just the 10,000 uh, because he's not a Pell recipient. And the other one, uh, Myra Brown, she she received loans and she has student loan debt, but she, they are held by uh, private entities and she wanted to consolidate them into a direct loan, but then she wasn't able to do that. So now she doesn't qualify. So it kind of sounds like, you know, just on the face of it, okay, these are two folks who are basically saying they want def debt relief, but they don't qualify. So they're challenging this. And, you know, obviously like they're just, you know, they're just the face of it. And in reality, both of them are, are right-wing uh, crazy folks who don't want to see lazy college students who who um, need to just work harder who took out government money uh to pay for the education they don't want to see them receive any kind of benefit even though my uh myra brown who's one of the plaintiffs she herself according to the intercept uh is a recipient of a ppp loan uh forty seven thousand nine hundred and ninety six dollars uh that was forgiven by the federal government for her uh ppp loan so it's like She's already had a massive forgiveness of almost $50,000, and she is the plaintiff in the suit saying that this $20,000 forgiveness is trash, like people shouldn't get that because it's so wrong for this or that reason. It's, it's really sad, I guess, just sad how mean-spirited some folks are when it comes to any effort to help people out like this is literally just to help people out and of course now the the loan forgiveness website has a giant notice on it about this uh legal challenge and that it's temporarily on hold and you know things are being appealed and all that stuff so hopefully it still ends up uh working out well but yeah it's just uh really 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 trash that you're so okay with corporations time after time after time receiving uh help receiving um all sorts of all sorts of benefits but everyday folks like this what for some people is a measly 10 to twenty thousand, to uh based on how much loan debt they have like giving them some help is like somehow un-american and somehow wrong it's just so so sad that that's the case but you know i don't know gen z really showed out in this election gen z really showed out um in these midterms so i, I don't know how much the student loan debt issue encouraged gen z uh young folks to really hit the polls but Clearly, this isn't going away, so we'll see what impact it has on um, the 2024 election with regards to what are, what are we, I mean, obviously, at, at that point, depending on how things go, like, there might be more forgiveness or it might just all be done. So, we'll see, but yeah, man, sad, I guess. Overall yeah. takeaway, sad that these people are so mean. Sad. That's my, that's Very my sad. analysis. So sad. Sad. <laughs> <Very. laughs> Uh, yeah, it is sad though, in the in the like very real sense of that word, right? Like, there, you know, we have such uh, radicalization of the right wing in this country right now that is that is just off the deep end of like anything approaching 
proper administration of, of government. And this is just another one of those things, right? That's like, why do you hate people so much? Like, why do you hate right. doing anything that's good for people and love doing things that are bad for people? Like, it's it's like cartoon villainish or something. Yeah, you know? like, yeah. It's hard to explain. And, you know, I mean, there are explanations, of course, but it is, uh, man, it's hard for me to imagine, like, living my life that way, um, uh, you know. It, it's such It's so counter to any kind of moral compass that I'm familiar with. Uh, but alas, here we are. So, you know, 22 million borrowers had applied for this relief as of late October. Uh, of course, it's on hold at this point. So I don't know if that number would have risen much at all, um, if at all, um, at this point. But still, that's tens of millions of people, all of whom are voting age. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> and like you just taking money out of people's pockets and putting it into the pockets of banks. Like, how is that cool in any way, shape, or form? Uh, so um, objection, objection. They're not putting it into the pockets of banks, Jeff. Banks have so much money, it cannot be held in their pockets, okay? Yeah, just had They a, have those big uh, Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> I was just thinking uh, of Scrooge McDuck <laughs> swimming, swimming in the vault. <laughs> yes, that's what they got. That is what we got going on. The, the ducktailsification of Americans' financial landscape. <laughs> Uh, all right, folks, that's that's what we got. Election 2022 uh, through the lens of education and a little bit of, po you know, not quite election, but politics related, uh, you know, yeah. news. So that's what we got for you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that was that was a lengthy passing period. That's one of those passing periods where like, oh, damn, the bell rang. Damn, let me get back in there. Kids are in there running amok because <laughs> I didn't realize the bell already rang. I'm in the hallway talking to talking to my colleague and. Uh, went overtime, went overtime. It's all good. It's all good, folks. All right, so shout out to those of y'all who are still with us all the way at the end of this passing period. Uh, definitely send us your thoughts about these results, and particularly if you either live in an area where the school district shifted in a major way, uh, right or left, uh, based on uh, the the ongoing controversy and fight over banning books and this and that. Like, let us know your uh, your local experience, and, and definitely let us know what things are, are, are looking like in your area. So, yeah, hit us up. All right. Remember, folks, we do love y'all. This is all of the above. We appreciate you being here with us. We appreciate the contributions that many of you have made to help keep the show going. Uh, AOTAshow.com slash support. Uh, we appreciate those of y'all who go ahead and do that thumbs up or the five stars and write a nice little review when you have time. We appreciate all that. It goes a long way. This is just a two-person operation here. Uh, two full-time educators taking a taking a a little break on a Saturday morning to discuss what's going on in the world of education. So thank you for joining us. We will, we will be back next week with a full episode, super, super dope episode, because we are talking about something that we have not talked about very much at all on our show, which is the little ones, the little ones at the kindergarten level, early childhood education, what equity issues are, are, are happening down there, and how can we learn from that to help build a better system for everybody. We'll have uh, Teo Enna on the show, super dope kindergarten teacher up in the Bay Area. So you don't want to miss that. Until then, though, it's time for you to go ahead and get to class. <laughs>